direction. There is a centripetal force to the Christian life. In other words, all roads, if you read the Bible carefully, ultimately lead to what Jesus has done on behalf of people like you and I. So yes and amen is a precious, precious promise from God's word. Well, guys, we are going to wrap up our series here, as Pastor Rod says, messy through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, man, I have enjoyed working through these passages. I hope you have enjoyed them. I have particularly enjoyed giving Pastor Rod all the hard ones in 1 Corinthians. That has been a joy of my heart to just watch him squirm and sweat up here and then serve us so well. So thank you, Rod. Um, we are wrapping up this week, and man, for those of you that have not been to Gospel Hope for very long, we are launching into next week what we like to do during the summer or at the tail end of the summer, we call our Doctrine Series. So we just walk through a doctrine of Scripture, and this year we're going to be looking at anthropology. Anybody know that is the doctrine of what? Man, very good. So we're going to be looking at what it means to, to talk about concepts like what it means to be made in the image of God what it means to be a sinner and a sufferer, what it means to be created for community, what it means to be men and women. All of these ideas over the next four or five weeks, we're going to be diving in those. So we're excited. Pastor Rod, myself, as well as Manuel Sanchez is going to be doing some teaching in that. So we are excited about that. So please tune back in next week as we kick off our anthropology series. So let's pray and we'll jump right in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. Father, all the promises of Christ are, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so, Lord, we come before you with great confidence knowing that we can find help in our time of need because of Christ. We know that we have access to you because of Christ. And we know that you are close to those who humble themselves before you because of Christ. So we humble ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Hide me behind the cross of Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. In my hand, I hold a, a cassette tape, folks. That's right. That's right. But this is not just any cassette tape. This is the cassette tape of my very first sermon in grown people church okay so a um, couple observations about this tape that i hold in my hand here first of all the contents of it are objectively terrible um yeah i, I mean it, it, this was this was almost almost 25 years ago um almost 25 years ago preaching my my first sermon you know i was 18 or 19 years old people were kind you know they said nice things to me but they weren't true. Like, this was a bad sermon, folks. This was bad. And the preparation was wonderful, and I'm glad that I did it and everything, but I, I am, I'm equally glad that this is on a technology that is sliding into oblivion quickly. This is so bad, I can't even listen to it. That's how bad it is, folks. Um, second observation I would make about this is, I think over, you know, 25 years of preaching, I have, Lord willing, gotten a little bit better. Um, I, I hope that what I say this morning is not going to be as bad as what was on there, in other words. But, but here's the idea. That's certainly evidence of the grace of God in my life and the Holy Spirit working in and through me. But from a human standpoint, there's one word that can describe while you're not going to get this Ryan, you're going to get this Ryan. 
this morning? And the answer is, or the reason is, work. Work. I did some calculations from this time until now, and roughly in between that sermon and this morning, I have done, I have preached, publicly proclaimed God's word in the vicinity of around 1,500 times. Let's say each time represents roughly eight hours of preparation and delivery time. So you do the math there, and that means I have spent roughly 12,000 hours studying and teaching God's word. Very simply put, that's a lot of what? Work. I bring this up as not as an attempt to impress you in any way, but rather to uh, address what I believe is a very common misconception. Namely, we can often think that ministry is supposed to be easy. Have you ever thought that way? You know, because ministry, serving other people, sharing the gospel, laying down our lives for others is such a good and godly thing, we also sometimes assume that it's supposed to be an easy thing. But that doesn't seem to be the way that the Apostle Paul thought about ministry at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 58 says it this way. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's what? Work. Because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul refers to ministry with two words that are very similar, work and labor. It seems that Paul wants us to understand, if I could put it very plainly, that service requires sweat. That is, we must acknowledge that using our gifting to see the mission of God go forward will call us at times to exert ourselves. Now, I don't know where the notion originated, but we need to disabuse ourselves of the idea that inspirational music will start playing in the background every time we share the gospel. Like we think our, 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 our lives are some sort of movie set or something like that. We start sharing the gospel and you hear the, you know, the violins begin to... to I, I asked Anna actually to follow me around at work just so she can play when I get to key moments and when I'm talking. No, it doesn't happen, does it? You, you shouldn't expect that if you go back to serve the children and you're wiping runny noses and you're trying to teach them the gospel and you're doing all these things, at the end of the lesson, they'll fall down and just hug you around your, your, your neck and say, oh, teacher... You are so wise and good and generous to take out of your time to spend it ministering the word of Christ to little three-year-olds like me. No, it doesn't happen, folks. Sometimes we work and it's hard and no one notices. And kind of Paul expects that idea out of ministry. But he's not just a Debbie Downer. Look at what he says in the text again. Therefore... My dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Why should we do that? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul is essentially saying, though serving others can be tough, it's never in vain. Even if others don't recognize or appreciate your efforts, God sees and God rewards. Your labor in the Lord is never in vain. So if I could put it very plainly, it's like this. Ministry is both work and worthwhile. It's both of those things. 
God is not calling us to an easy path. He's not calling us to do things that require no effort. He's calling us to work, but then he says, but your work, your work for me is never in vain. It is a worthwhile effort, which is why he's inviting us all to participate in it. You know, 1 Corinthians is not written to just the pastors or the church leaders. 1 Corinthians is just written to the brothers and sisters, just the regular everyday Christians. He's saying, brothers and sisters, all of you should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. This is not just for the people that get their paycheck from working for the church. This is for any follower of Jesus to get in the game. All of us are called to gospel ministry in some regard, which brings me to my point this morning. We must all excel in the work of the ministry. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying by this verse. So that's 15, verse 58. Then what I think is going on in chapter 16 is Paul is, is giving a description of what it might look like for a whole church to get in the game. Have you ever read the end of, you know, Pauline epistles particularly? And there's like list of names and final instructions and like, hey, do this and that. and Don't forget about this. What's going on there? I think what Paul is doing us, he's giving us a real-life example of what it looks like for all Christians to be involved in the work of the ministry. We're not all doing the same thing, but we all have a part to play. So grab my cloak and bring the books and tell this person this and tell this person that. I think that's what the end of many of the epistles are all about. It's just a way of Paul demonstrating that I can't do what I do by myself. I need you all to participate in the work of the ministry. This is a shared task. Or as we like to say around here, Christianity is a team sport. We all do it together. It's something that we must participate in together. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is just give you three suggestions as to how to excel in ministry. How to excel in ministry. That's the call of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. How do we actually do it? Three suggestions. First one is this, sacrifice for the work. In Paul's day, just like in our own, the needs that faced the church far outpaced the ability of one individual or even a whole congregation to meet. At this particular point in time, the church at Jerusalem was facing a, a crisis, a, a hunger. Uh, they didn't have enough food to go around, and therefore their ability to minister, to do what God had called them to do, was severely hampered. So Paul says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to appeal to the Corinthians to help out the church at Jerusalem. And the principle is simply this. Paul understood, get this, that gospel generosity fuels missional momentum. Paul understood that the giving of God's people, the financial aid of God's people allows the mission of God to go forward in the world. And we see that principle played out time and time again in scripture. You know, that a group of women essentially served as patrons for Jesus' earthly ministry, Luke chapter 8. In other words, these women gave so that Jesus and the apostles could do what God had called them to do. Fast forward to Acts chapter 5. Barnabas sells a piece of property to enable the church to meet the crushing physical needs that were around them. 1 Timothy chapter 5, churches are called to financially support some of their leaders so that their leaders could give attention to leading the ministry. 
uh, Philippians chapter 4, the Philippian church sent money time and time again to the Apostle Paul. Why? So that the Apostle Paul could engage in his apostolic work. Simply put, the generous gifts of God's people allow ministry to keep moving. Then Paul, here in our passage, gives us some traits of what that generosity should look like in all of our lives. As he calls on the Corinthians to give, he's saying, here's some principles that can apply to all believers everywhere. Look at verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. I think we can see at least three characteristics of gospel generosity here. The first one is this. Our giving should be planned. Did you notice that in the passage? Paul says, set something aside so that no collection will need to be made when I come. That is, each believer, everyone desiring to engage in the work of the ministry, should have a generosity plan in place. Although it is certainly appropriate and godly and Christ-exalting to give spontaneous, um, help me, that's the word, um, spontaneously at times, we should do that. Like if a need comes across our plate, we should give spontaneously. But I also think what Paul is teaching us here is that part of our giving, it should be a, a regular plan in our lives. The principle does not exclude spontaneous giving, but it does say part of our giving plan should be intentional and purposeful and planned. Just as we budget for our rent or our mortgage or budget for our car or whatever it is, we should also budget in our giving to the Lord. We should have a plan in place. If several weeks, so second thing, persistent. Not only should our giving be planned, it should be persistent. Paul calls believers here to give on the first day of the week. It seems that Paul wanted the Corinthians to give on a regular basis. Now, I don't think this passage is saying, man, if you don't give every single Sunday, you're not walking in obedience to the Lord. I don't think that's what this is talking about. But what I do think it is saying is that giving should not be a, like a one-time affair. Like, well, I did that, you know, I did that a while ago, and I had a plan, and I executed the plan, but I haven't given. Look, church... If you don't give in several weeks or several months or a year and you kind of look back and you're like, man, I'm not giving. I don't think that's in keeping with the biblical pattern here. He's saying on the first day of the week, set aside like this should be a regular rhythm in your life. Not something that happens like once a year or something. It is a regular part of our gathering. In fact, in the Old Testament, part of corporate worship, part of corporate worship was giving to the Lord. Like I I mess with Jalen all the time. I'm like, I don't like the term worship leader. I don't, honestly. It's fine because I know we all kind of know what it means. It means you help us sing. Like, that's what it is. But everything that we do when we gather together is really worship to the Lord, right? Like, what I do, I'm leading us in a time of worship by studying the word right now. You know, when, when we give, that's part of our worship to the Lord. All of these things are part of our worship to the Lord. So when we don't do this persistently, we're actually missing out on a means of worshiping our God. Third thing, our giving should be proportional. Wow, I'm really having trouble with words. I'm going back to the tape, folks. Load it. Proportional. Notice Paul says that believers should give in keeping with how he is prospering them. 
That is, your giving should reflect what God has entrusted to you. Like in keeping with your income. That's the, pro- that's, that's the principle there. That as the Lord prospers you, your giving should reflect that. We shouldn't just get stuck and be like, well, I just give this amount. We should say, Lord, you're giving me this much. So, okay, how should I entrust it? When your, giving goes, when your income goes up, what should happen? Giving goes up. When your income goes down, what should happen? Giving goes down. It's in keeping. Now, if you want to keep it up, that's fine. That's between you and the Lord. But I think there's this idea that, man, we just should be prayerful and say, Lord, you haven't given me a whole lot, but I can be faithful with this little amount you've given me. Praise God for that. Or, Lord, you have given me a whole lot. I need to be faithful with that. Look, God has not just, here's the idea. As God increases our standard of living, we should also increase our standard of giving. As God increases our standard of living, we should also increase our standard of giving. Now, let me say all this. I'm trying to teach on what the passage says, but this is not coming from a place of angst at all. You know, as I look out at Gospel Hope Church, man, the Lord has been so faithful through your generosity. This is not a rebuke. This is just like encouraging us to stay the course. I can think of so many ways where the generosity of God's people in this particular congregation has allowed the mission to move forward. Do we have room for for growth? Certainly. But we should also celebrate how God has allowed your generosity to fuel the mission. Look, because of your generosity, international college students in Dubai heard the gospel from Todd and Brittany Bourne. Because of your generosity, hurting people in Lebanon received both physical and spiritual care from the Barber family. Because of your generosity, Ciudad de Gracia in Santo Domingo will be launched by the Sanchez's in January. They're just with us a couple more weeks and they're on their way out because of your generosity. Because of your generosity, families like the Rose, Evan and Laura and the Poons, Joshua and Amy have been equipped to minister the gospel overseas. Because of your generosity, Joaquin and Megan Pena will join us next week to begin the process of planting gospel hope in Espanol right here in our community. Because of your generosity, teachers at Jolly Elementary School and Freedom Middle School have been encouraged and blessed by members of our church. Because of your generosity, families that have chosen life for their babies have been served through our partnership with Beacon and Hope. Because of your generosity, our juniors and our teens have gone to camp this summer and heard the gospel and had their lives impacted by the wonderful words of life. Look, and that's just scratching the surface. All of this and more is possible because of the generosity of God's people. Look, not all of us are going to be on the front lines of every ministry opportunity. We can't. None of us are omnicompetent. None of us are omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at one time. We can't step into every opportunity that is in front of us. But we can give to God's mission and empower other people to be the hands and feet of Jesus where we cannot be. So if you want to get in the ministry game, give. And give with a smile on your face. 
Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God calls the Corinthian church to participate in ministry by being generous. And God calls you and I to the same thing. Look, generosity is not simply an obligation. It is an opportunity to engage in God's mission. Man, I, I remember when I had got my first paycheck. And, you know, I remember, I remember distinctly a time in college. And I put $20 in the offering plate. And that was painful. I mean, that was like 27 meals at that point. Like, you know, I put $20 in the offering plate, and I was like, praise the Lord as he prized that from my stubborn fingers. Man, I'm thankful I could write checks much bigger than that today. And that, that's not a boast, like, I'm thankful for my income, but I'm glad I get to participate in God's work. I'm glad I get to support Manuel and Jenna. I'm glad we get to support Derek and Carrie and Evan and Laura and Josh and Amy and all these folks that are drawn. To, I'm glad. I'm glad for those opportunities. And this is a way for all of us to engage in gospel ministry by being generous. Yeah, you may never go, but somebody's got to hold the ropes, and that can be us, folks. Number two, submit to the work. The second way we can excel in gospel ministry is by simply submitting to the work. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at verse 5. Here's Paul speaking. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. And perhaps I will remain with you and even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. I mean, what is Paul's problem here? I mean, can the dude not make a decision? You notice all the tentative language here? I mean, everything about his itinerary is like kind of an asterisk after it. Hope, whenever, if the Lord allows, perhaps. I think the reason for this tentativeness was simply a reflection of Paul's values. You see, because Paul was all in on God's mission, he was very open to divine interruption. In other words, when Paul looked to the future, he essentially thought about it this way. My plan is to go this way. But if the Lord thinks otherwise, I will do exactly what he says. In fact, he tells us exactly that in verse number 8. Look there. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because you got family there, nice beaches, there's a resort, I got a timeshare. Why, Paul? Why are you going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost? Is the weather particularly nice? Because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me. I'm here because the mission demands it. That's what Paul's saying. My plans are subject to the message. The principle is this. We should put our yes on the table and let God put it on the map. In other words, if we are to fully engage in gospel ministry, we should say essentially this. Lord, I will do whatever you want, wherever you want me to do it. My yes is on the table. You just tell me when and where I'm in. It's not a question of if, it's just where, when. I am ready to do your will, Lord. So if the Lord opens a door to a mission field overseas, then your yes is already on the table. 
If God opens a door for you to serve in the kids' ministry, which is very much like the overseas mission field, your yes is already on the table. If God opens a door to share the gospel with your neighbors, then your yes is on the table. If God opens a door for you to serve the fatherless, your yes is on the table. If God opens a door for you to be part of a church plant, your yes is on the table. If God opens a door to pour into another believer's life, then your yes is on the table. The question is not if you are called to ministry, it is just where. That should be our heart. Lord, I'm in. I'm all in. Whatever you say, I want, just tell me where. But even with this clarion call, Paul wants us to be clear about another phenomenon. That there is a cost to ministry. 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. Yet many oppose me. Did you catch that? So he's like, hey, this is clearly the Lord's will. Wide door is open for me. I'm going to step into it, and yet it is hard. Here's the idea. Obedience does not eliminate opposition. Sometimes we get this idea that when we step into a life of obedience to the Lord, then things will necessarily be rainbows and ponies and all of the wonderful things like that. But just because we are obeying doesn't mean that we won't face opposition. In fact, Paul is saying that is exactly the case. I am obeying the Lord. Therefore, I am experiencing opposition to the work that he has called me to do. You know, when we came to Atlanta to plant Gospel Hope Church, my wife and I were convinced that we were walking in obedience to the Lord. Much prayer, much counsel looked at the providence that the Lord had put before us. And yet, when we moved here, it was the move from hell. The day we left Chicago, one of our cars, which was already fully loaded, just quit, just up and died completely. So we unloaded the car and stuffed it into the moving truck. On our way down, because of some rogue GPS issues, Trish and I got separated. We were several hours apart. She was driving with almost all of our children. I just had one of them with us. She's back on a country road in the middle of nowhere, and the car catches on fire. She unloads the kids thanks to a good Samaritan out there in the woods. I mean, it was just nowhere, literally nowhere. She gets out of the car. They're kind of under this awning, and she says, well, at least it's not raining. Our life was a movie, but the wrong kind at that point. When we arrived in Georgia, we got into our house and go to, which was on a Friday, turned the spigot of the water, no water in the house, and we had it not for the weekend. You know, and then we go downstairs, okay, at least it'll be cool on here. You turn the AC on, it made a weird sound and didn't work at all at the end of July. Now, I realize those are all like first world problems, right? Those are in, the, in the larger scope of things, they, those are not hard things at all. But I do want to illustrate a simple principle from this. It's, it's namely obedience does not mean a lack of opposition. You know, the devil is real. You know that, folks? Sometimes in our modern Western society, we can forget that there is an adversary who is walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when you give your life to the mission of God, to get involved in what the Lord is doing in the, in the world, guess what? Satan hates that. 
and he hates you. And he will do all that is in his power to discourage, to thwart, to make you take your hand off the plow and quit. And we need to remember that obedience is not always the path of least resistance. Sometimes it's the path of hardest resistance in our lives. So how do we get in the game? How do we involve in the work of the ministry? How do we excel in this? We submit to the work and say, Lord, whatever you want, whatever it costs, I'm all in. My yes is on the table. You just tell me where. Third and finally, how do we excel in the work of the ministry? We share in the work. So Paul's landing the plane here in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he kind of rips through a list of names. Look there at the end of the chapter, just kind of glance. Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Aquila, and Priscilla. Now, some of those names you might recognize, Timothy maybe, or Apollos, but some of them probably aren't at, at all familiar to you. And, and yet, here in this passage of Scripture, as he closes out the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives glowing praise to people that we don't even know their names. Look at what it says in verse number 15. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I, I just think that'd be a nice recommendation letter. Listen to everything they say. Sign the Apostle Paul. I want that on my resume. But do you notice here, he doesn't even list them by name. Just the household of Stephanus. Those folks that are related to, you know, your boy Stephanus. Listen to them. They're good people. Do what they say. And we never even get any information about them. This illustrates a profound truth. God's extraordinary work is often accomplished by ordinary people. Now, sure, there are some all-stars. Yeah, you got your John the Baptists. You got your Apostle Pauls. They attract a lot of attention. But the Lord, in his wisdom, entrusts the bulk of ministry. Most of what he's doing in the world to a bunch of average Joes and Janes. That's it. God says, here, the work of the ministry is not for the superstars. It's for average people. And this is not a new phenomenon. God seems to use a lot of just people. Here's what I mean by that. Joshua was just an assistant to Moses. Hannah was just a woman who longed for a child. David was just a shepherd. Elisha was just a farmer. Amos was just a gatherer of figs. Esther was just an orphan. Mary was just a teenager from an out-of-way place. Peter, James, and John were just fishermen. And Lydia was just a business owner. These are not uniquely impressive people. That's the idea. They're not uniquely gifted people. And this is good news because here's what it means. The mission has never been dependent on our awesomeness, but on the awesomeness of the one that we serve. The mission is not about how good you are, but about how good God is. You know, sometimes we have this wrong perception of ministry. We think ministry is like a professional sporting event, right? You pay to go to a professional sporting event and watch the people who are like super skilled at the event do their thing. And you clap 
when they do things that you can't do, and you boo when they also do things that you can't do. I never understood that phenomenon. But sometimes that's how we think about ministry. It's like, ministry, well, Ryan, isn't that you're in Rod's job? Like, we're here to watch you do ministry. And you clap when we do good, and you boo a lot here. There's a lot of booing here. I don't like it, all right? I'm a person. But I think it's the wrong analogy altogether. I think ministry is much more like a rec league. You know what a rec league is? There's two rules at a rec league. One, first rule is this. You don't have to be good. Anybody can play in the rec league. Like, you don't have to have a skill level. You just sign up and you can play in the game. You don't have to be good. Second rule in rec league is this. Everyone plays. Regardless of skill level, everyone plays. And I think that's how we should think about ministry. It's not for those that are uniquely gifted or uniquely skilled or can talk really well or sing really well. It's just for all of us to get in the game, to put it very plainly, the mission belongs to us all. It's ours. That mission on the back of the wall there, making disciples who grow in the gospel as a family while on mission, that is not Rod and I's mission. That is all of our mission. The fact of the matter is, if Rod and I try to accomplish that mission on our own, we get an F. Because the mission is bigger than any one of us. We all have to get in the game. And God invites us to do this. And here's the good news. You know, God has a lot of like just those people on his team, you know. Who's on your team? Well, just that guy. And just that girl. And just him and just her. God's so good though, that's plenty. That's plenty. All he needs is a bunch of just people. So you can put whatever adjective in front of your name you want. You are sufficient because it's not dependent on your awesomeness. It's dependent on the awesomeness of the one who invites you to get in the game. So you might hear all this and you say, oh, Ryan, I, yes, I want to minister to other people. I do. But I don't know what to say. I mean, I think I'll screw it up. Like, I got my own mess. And if I, like, try to start helping other people with their mess, I think they'll be more messy than me. This series about messiness, it's like an autobiography. Like, Pastor Ryan, you don't understand. I mean, I know I come in here in church and I clean up okay. But then I go home and, man, it's, it's rough out there. How am I supposed to get in this game? Here's the good news for us, and it's found over in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read this passage of Scripture to you. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The, the he in this passage is referring to Jesus. And particularly to his life and death and powerful resurrection on behalf of his people. You see, when Jesus died and rose again, he did it in order to gift his church. That's what this passage is saying. And he gave. You notice that? It's him the one that's giving. 
He gives these gifts in his church so that ordinary believers could do the work of the ministry. Notice it doesn't say like he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers so the really qualified people could do the work of the ministry. No, he gave these gifts to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You know this who saints are? It's just regular followers of Jesus. It's you and me. Jesus died on the cross so that you could minister to others. Your ability to serve, to bless, to get in the game and get off the bench is a blood-bought gift. Yes, Jesus died to take you to heaven one day. Praise the Lord for that. But Jesus also died to equip you to serve today. The gospel is not just a then and there message. It is a here and now message. And some of you have been sitting on the bench for too long. And you need to remember that Christ died so that you could, with all your failings and all your foibles and all your weaknesses and all your shortcomings, get in the game. And start pouring out your life for others. If I could put it very simply, I would say it this way. Christ worked for us so that we could work for him. He died on the cross to enable us to be servants in his vineyard. Look, Christ died so that Anna could get up here and and play that violin and bless and encourage us. Christ died so that Corey could move around chairs and set up signs so that we could invite people and welcome people into worship. Christ died so that Ed could shake hands and smile at people and give them a guest bag as they come in so that people would be feel welcomed in the name of Christ. Christ died so that the dozens of people right over here serving our children right now so that they could serve them and teach them the word of God so that the next generation could be impacted with the wonderful words of life Christ died so that Rashad and Steve and Leonard and all the ones that and Carolyn could invest in the young people and help them to see their need for the savior and the ability to grow Christ died so that David and Denise could care for our church family by leading a community group. Look, guys, these gifts that God has entrusted us with, they're from Him. So they enable all of us to participate in His work in the world. God never calls us to do something that He won't enable us to do. And so realize that part of the purpose of the death burial and resurrection of the savior is to enable you to be involved in his work in the world you may feel inadequate but he is adequate enough for all of us look if somebody comes to gospel hope church and says who are your ministers don't be snarky just tell them it's pastor rod and i because that's what they mean right (laughs) but in the back of your mind let this track be running who are our ministers Well, you're talking to one right now. And him over there and her over there and all of us. We're all ministers here because Christ died to make that so. All of us are involved in the work of the ministry. 
you want to talk to a minister? Here I am. My yes is on the table. And I'm ready to serve in whatever capacity you would call me to serve in, Lord. I'm just stepping into obedience to you because you died to make that a reality. So I want to close by singing. And here's what I want to do. Hey, let's sing together. And will all the ministers of God's church arise and let's sing in praise to our Lord. So let's stand up together and sing in praise of the one who equipped us for the ministry. Father, we thank you so much. that you served us to enable us to serve others. We thank you that our ability to minister to others is not dependent on how smart we are or talented we are, but on the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, may our church be filled with people who desire to serve in your name. Let us be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's sing in praise of our Savior together. Amen.